0: listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to First Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter 2. While you're turning there, let me just say that sermon preparation this week has been a little different than the norm, that is for sure. I don't have to have the internet to do sermon prep. Um, but some of the tools that I use, um, rely on internet access. And so, um, I was uh, thinking it's kind of like a guy who has a wood shop and he makes furniture, uh, and he's been accustomed to using some really nice power tools and things of that nature. And then all of a sudden is forced to uh, make furniture by hand. Well, that's in some ways what, uh, I've done this past week. Uh, and it's, uh, It's been challenging on some levels, but it's uh, also been uh, refreshing in some ways. Now, don't think for a moment that I just go to sermons.com and get a sermon, okay? That's not what I'm saying, okay? Um, But there is a particular... a particular software package that a lot of us preachers use that allows us to access some of our resources and things. We don't have to physically have all those books in our library. And you certainly don't want to download all of those books and keep them on your uh, on your laptop or whatever. So uh, with that, let me just ask you this question. How is your sense of smell? Did you ever think we would be even considering that like we do these days? I mean, one of the, one of the first things that people talk about when they Uh, are experiencing symptoms of the coronavirus as they lose their sense of taste and smell. Um, I want you to just kind of hold that thought for a little bit. We're going to come back to that uh, a little bit later uh, this morning. But how is your sense of smell? The book of 1 Corinthians uh, is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth in which he addresses a number of uh, issues in this church. Uh, The letter is really a response in a series of correspondence between Paul and the church at Corinth, and even some uh, members of the church at Corinth. Chloe is one who's mentioned, uh, of course. The theological message of 1 Corinthians is that the gospel requires God's people to mature in holiness and unity. The one theme that drives uh, all of Paul's writing, whether it's here in, in Corinthians or whether he's writing to uh, Timothy, uh, other places, uh, is the gospel. Uh, That Jesus lived and died and rose again for sinners, and God will save anyone who turns from their sin in faith to Jesus Christ. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we looked at the first section, the first half of the second chapter of 1 Corinthians here, and and there we saw Paul's perspective on preaching. And I want to remind you. Uh, That uh, he very clearly says to us God's work, done God's way, produces results that we can't explain, that we can't control, and for which we cannot take the credit. And if we study church history, we know that God did some amazing things through the apostle Paul and, and other uh, committed church leaders and so forth. Um, it, but it was the Lord's work ultimately that was done, uh, in the early church. And that is true here of the church at Corinth. Now, Paul describes his preaching using this metaphor of a, of a herald and a herald is someone who proclaims the message of another, uh, Paul was laser focused on proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified. He preached Jesus. He didn't preach Jesus as just some self-help guru. Uh, He didn't preach Jesus as just some good moral leader to help the Corinthian people become better people. Uh, He preached Christ in him crucified. He proclaimed the gospel that the Corinthians uh, were sinful people in need of a savior. He preached the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the life-giving power of the gospel message, and he did this to the glory of of God. And I remind you in the context of uh, the first part of chapter two here, particularly when you consider the context of uh, the cultural context of Corinth and that area, the Greco-Roman world and the, the sophists, those who were the philosophers of the day, the orators of the day, those who practiced rhetoric and, and that kind of thing. That was, those were the rock stars of the day. And so it's kind of in that, with that backdrop that the apostle Paul says, Hey, that's not what I'm about. And the reason is because he wanted the people to trust in God and not the messenger that God sent. Already he's talked about division in the church a couple of times and that division um, surrounding people. Remember some are saying, well, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow, I follow Cephas, and so forth. And he's going he's to bring that up again. So it must have been a pretty big issue uh, in the church at Corinth particularly. Now I remind you that Paul wrote to the Romans... Uh, In Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so hopefully that kind of brings us up to speed a little bit. Today we're going to focus our attention on verses 11 through 16 of the second chapter of 1 Corinthians here, so I hope that you will follow along as I read. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's important. Verse 15 says, "...the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." And so here, uh, if we back up just a tad into verse number 10 to, to kind of bring us into where we are today, Paul made it clear that God has revealed his wisdom to his people through the Spirit. And then here in verse number 11, Paul explains why the Spirit probes the depths of God with a rhetorical question and then a concluding statement. The only one who can know a person's thoughts, he says, is that person himself, namely his spirit. And in the same way, the only one who can know God's thoughts is God himself, namely his spirit, God the Holy Spirit. And so then in verse number 12, Paul continues to kind of develop the spirit theme from verses 10 and 11. God's people have the spirit, not the spirit of worldly wisdom, but God's spirit of true wisdom. God gave his people his spirit for a specific purpose so that they could understand what God reveals to them. People can understand what God reveals only through the Spirit. It has nothing to do with their own intelligence or their own wisdom. So the big idea of our text this morning and of the message is simply this. The gospel is revealed by the Spirit through the Word. The gospel is revealed by the Spirit through the Word. Now Paul points out some very important ministries of the Holy Spirit of God. We've uh, missed two Wednesday nights, midweek gatherings with our RAs and GAs and student ministry and so forth because of the weather. And that first week that we missed, uh, I had a responsibility that night. I was asked by Kelly Kroll, our RA leader, to teach first through fourth grade boys about the Holy Spirit. Piece of cake, right? <laughs> there are some things that, that are a little challenging for us to fully comprehend and understand. Uh, And and certainly the Holy Spirit, the nature of the Trinity, the Godhead. Uh, That's not easy stuff. Not easy stuff. But but Paul gives us some things here, some important ministries of the Holy Spirit of God that hopefully will help us uh, leave today with some clarity as it relates to these things. The first thing I want us to notice is this. The Spirit indwells believers. The Spirit indwells believers. Now let's face it us Baptists, those of us with a Baptist background particularly, we're a little bit afraid of the Holy Spirit, aren't we? Come on, let's just be real, right? Uh, go ahead, I'm not the only one, please tell me, I'm not, okay? You know, you kind of grow up in this certain tradition, and if somebody near you gets a little emotional during a worship service or something, it's kind of like, what's about to happen in here? You know, it's like, uh-oh, <laughs> Now, those of you who grew up in other traditions, you know, you're fine, okay? And I'm not saying, I don't want you to hear me say that I am against us worshiping the Lord emotionally. I believe that God has created us to be emotional beings. Scripture tells us we're to worship Him in spirit and in truth, right? Okay? But I think sometimes we have these preconceived notions and ideas. Like, I'll hear people say, man, the Holy Spirit was just big in the service today, and I always ask them questions like, how do you know? Well... And they'll, usually they'll refer to some kind of emotional expression a lot of times as evidence that the Holy Spirit uh, has been in the worship service or in the room. And that's not necessarily always the case. Okay, I'm not suggesting that you can't be moved by the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm always amazed when worship leaders will get up and they'll go, how many of y'all feel like worshiping today? How you feeling, people? I mean, it, it, it's important how you feel. I'm not suggesting that it's not. But the truth is, sometimes when I come to church, and I'm the pastor, I don't feel like worshiping, right? I've had a tough week. I mean, I know you have too, and, and so sometimes you can just like I'm just tired, man, I, and I really would like to just But you know what I, I find? When I worship first in truth, and that's the engine that drives the train, my feelings come right behind. In that early service this morning, when I was reading Romans chapter 5, 20 and 21, I was just overcome with emotion. Because just the thought of my sinfulness intersecting with the grace of God is just an overwhelming thought to me sometimes. And so I hope that you understand where we're coming from today. And when I say that the Spirit indwells believers, that is not to be confused with the filling of the Spirit. Not to be confused with the filling of the Spirit. You can be born again, you can be a child of God, a follower of Jesus Christ, having turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but not be filled with the Spirit. Because let's face it, some days we get up and we choose to follow our own lustful passions, our own fleshly desires and things of that nature. So you're still indwelt by the Spirit, but you're not filled with the Spirit. That's why Scripture says, be being filled with the Spirit. This is not to be confused with that. We're talking about the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. The moment you trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the Spirit of God indwells you. If we move ahead to chapter 6 here in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of liberty. We have not received the spirit of the world because we have been called out of this world and and no longer belong to it. So the Holy Spirit indwells us, convicting us, comforting us. The Holy Spirit's the parakletos, the paraclete, the one called alongside. Uh, And then in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17, he says, "'For did uh, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear.'" But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then check this out. The spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit ministers to us and makes the father real to us. The Holy Spirit indwells believers. Now, we're going to camp out a little longer this morning on this second point. This is really what I believe to be the gist of what Paul is teaching here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, particularly this last half. That is, the Spirit teaches believers. The Spirit teaches believers. Paul describes how he, how he speaks about the things freely given to us by God in verse number 12. This is the third time in this passage... That Paul says he imparts wisdom, but this, in this particular instance, it is the most specific. And Paul explains that the way he imparts wisdom is through his spoken and written words, which, which come not from human wisdom, he makes that clear, but from the Spirit's wisdom. And that final phrase is the means through which Paul imparts these wise words. Remember, he was kind of drawing this contrast between the, uh, the orators of the day Okay, and himself, and the way that he delivered the message that God had given him uh, for his people. So there are two primary ways that that we many times understand this phrase. Number one, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And number two, interpreting spiritual truths in spiritual language. It looks like this. In the first part of verse number 13, Paul says this, the things freely given us by God through wise, spirit-taught words. And then the latter part of verse 13 answers kind of the question of how. By explaining them to people with the Spirit, and by explaining them with wise, Spirit-taught words. Now there are some commentators who would have us believe that it has to be an either-or proposition. I don't, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I believe that both make good sense, even in the context, even when you kind of look at the original language. The first anticipates verses 14 and 15. The second one explains the first part of verse number 13. And so Paul communicates this big basic idea with this. And so Paul speaks about what God has freely given people with the Spirit by explaining it to them with Spirit-taught words. With Spirit-taught words. So think of it this way. How, how would you all feel this morning if I got up here and I started delivering the message in Russian? Would anybody here understand the message? Any Russian speakers? Okay, you might know a little bit, okay, but I I doubt there's anybody in the room that's fluent in Russian, okay? And so it's pretty safe to say that you wouldn't be especially edified by the sermon, right? You might be impressed by the fact that I could speak Russian, okay? But beyond that, I mean, and you can maybe appreciate the beauty of the language and how words are formed using, you know, all those sorts of things, but you really wouldn't be very edified by it. That's, That's in a sense what we're talking about here. Okay, and so hang with me for just a moment. I want, I want us to, to, to kind of unpack a few words that hopefully you have heard in church life, but these words are often confused. They're many times intermingled. And so let's consider uh, some theological doctrinal terms, okay? How about the word revelation? And I'm not talking about the last book of the Bible, right? I do find it interesting. In fact, Jason and I were talking about this before the service, how many people are focusing their attention right now on the book of Revelation in light of all the things going on in our world. It's amazing how many questions I get during seasons like this about preaching. I mean, when's Jesus coming back and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. Sometimes I just want to mess with people and go, I'm pretty sure it's March the 3rd. You know, I just, I don't know. I, scripture says none of us know. None of us know the day and they be like, really? Totally? I'm putting that on my calendar. I'm, you know, like, I mean, yes, there are things in, in, in Scripture that tell us we can look for these things. It, it refers to them as birth pangs. There are things that point to and give evidence to the fact that, uh, that, that, that things are happening, and, and, but it's all God's timetable. Okay, but in Revelation here, we're not talking about the book of Revelation, okay, which John the Revelator wrote on the Isle of Patmos. Scripture tells us that God has revealed, this is the Revelation part, has revealed himself to humans in two ways. The first of these is known as is what we call natural revelation. The word natural, of course, speaks about nature. It's one of the ways that God has revealed himself to us. And God's word tells us this through nature, through all that he has created. So since we can't see God physically, we learn about him uh, indirectly in that which he has made. For example, uh, if uh, if I look at myself in the mirror... And you just consider the the intricacies of the human body and all of those things, and the way that the circulatory system works, and the the skeletal system, and the muscular system, all of those things, how it all works, you can't help but go, wow, that is some amazing creative genius. And that tells us about the complexity of our God. I can learn about God from nature. I can see uh, that the universe is orderly and it's not chaotic. It teaches me about God's character. I can learn from nature that God loves beauty and variety. And so there is much that nature reveals to us and should cause us not to worship the nature itself. We are not pantheists, okay? We don't don't worship the creation. We worship the creator. And, And I don't know about you, but I've been in some pretty amazing places, beautiful places that will just almost take your breath away. I love to go to the mountains and, and places like that. And when you're there, man, you just like, sometimes you, you probably had this experience. Like, I just feel closer to the Lord. Okay, but I hope you find yourself, your attention, your heart turned in worship to the one who created all of it. Okay, so you have natural revelation. The second way that God has revealed himself is through what we call special revelation. This includes direct verbal communication. We see that in scripture. Adam and Eve enjoyed this before the fall. Uh, words of prophecy in Scripture as the Lord spoke to uh, the prophets of old, the times when uh, certainly when God became man through Jesus Christ, and then finally with the Bible. And so obviously in this area there's some disagreement about whether direct revelation and prophecy have ceased since the closing of the canon. Uh, I will tell you that I happen to be a, a revelatory cessationist. That's, that's, that's a dollar term right there that basically means uh, God is no longer giving people special revelation in the way that he did uh, in, in that particular day. Um, so uh, Christians who do not believe uh, in the, uh, the cessation aspect of this, then sometimes they, you might hear them say, hey, I got this special word from the Lord. I got some special revelation from the Lord. I'm always a little skeptical of that. I'm always like, so God's given you a word that nobody else has or that nobody else has been given. Um, you got to be very, very careful there, okay? Regardless of your perspective on the gifts in this particular area, the majority of what we learn about God is contained in the Bible. And one way you can check any kind of uh, supposed revelation or whatever is it will always be consistent with the Word. Okay, somebody comes along and says, hey, i got this new special revelation from God. If it's contrary to the Word of God, you can know it's not legit, Okay? This is the test. This is the test. So God has given us his word. And so, um, and so that's revelation. Okay? And then there is inspiration. Inspiration. Probably heard that term. We talk about the inspiration of scripture. Uh, we believe that uh, whenever I stand here and I open my Bible, you sit there and open your Bible. You follow along. You listen to the message. We are together looking at studying the inspired Word of God. Okay, not just some good religious text, not just some good literature. No, this is the very Word of God. Paul said, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is God-breathed. That's the inspiration that we're talking about here. It teaches us that it was written by humans under the direct inspiration of God. Now, to understand this, I think it's helpful for us to examine what it is not. We're talking about inspiration. First, it does not mean that it was written in a clever way or by an especially brilliant person. Now, we may say that a classic novel uh, or a favorite song or a favorite piece of art uh, is an inspired work of art. But this is not what we mean when we speak of the Bible being inspired. Uh, You can go to an art display at a gallery and you can leave there and feel like, man, I am so inspired to go home and paint. Um, That's not the kind of inspiration that we're talking about here. Um, Second, this does not mean that God gave people thoughts and ideas that they then further expanded upon and wrote down. Okay, so it's not like God gave the, the, the human authors the biblical authors, like a starter kit, and they just kind of took it around with it. Okay, that's not what inspiration is. No, God was involved in both the thoughts and the actual words so that the words of the Bible truly are God's words. And then thirdly, it does not mean uh, the words are the words of men and only become God's words as we read them and he helps us understand them. That makes uh, scripture far too subjective. And so it's not as if these human, some 40 human authors, submitted a manuscript to God. God reads it and goes, That's pretty good. I think I'll put that in my Bible. Okay, that's not how it works. That's not what inspiration is. Okay, fourthly, it does not mean that biblical writers took dictation or acted like robots writing down God's words in some sort of a trance like state without thought or feeling. If that had been the case, then we wouldn't be able to explain the different styles and personalities that are evident uh, in the various authors. And so what does it mean that God inspired these human authors to write the Bible like the Apostle Paul? Well, to understand this, we have to understand that God is eternal and God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. So it means that God used people, their thoughts, their experiences, their backgrounds, their personalities to write his words. And so if they spoke with simple words like some authors tend to do, it was because God had decided in eternity past that they would not be highly educated. If they spoke in complex words and argued their points with great clarity, it was because God had dictated that they would be highly educated and have brilliant minds the words they chose were the words God had determined, I believe, from eternity that they would use. So the author's words were their own, yet at the same time, because God had so directed their lives, they were his words too. So when we say that this book is a miracle book, we mean it. It's miraculous in nature. So if you look at your bookshelf at home and you've got several copies of the Bible there and you've got them nestled in there among all your other books and you think of it as just another book among many, you don't fully understand the nature of this book. Okay, we can talk about classics like whatever and think, man, that is a classic. That is a... No, 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 no. This book goes far beyond that. This is a miraculous book in the way that God inspired it. Inspiration, then, is what God used to transmit to us the special revelation contained in the Bible. That leads us to another word, the word illumination. Illumination. And this is one that is, uh, is many times misunderstood. Uh, sometimes we... We don't even give this some consideration, but I think that's primarily what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So what is this illumination ideal? These concepts lead to this uh, this idea that God illumines. It, It refers to God's work in the lives of believers to make us able to believe and understand the words of the Bible. So this does not mean that the Spirit gives us a new revelation but he applies to our lives the truths contained in his existing revelation so the doctrine depends on an understanding of human sin because we're polluted by sin we're not able to fully comprehend god's revelation we're dependent on him to illumine our hearts to see and understand it and so while illumination depends on revelation which we've talked about It has to be differentiated from it. We have the privilege of looking to his full and final infallible revelation in the Scriptures and having assurance that the Spirit will illumine those words for us. Many Christians confuse these. When they suddenly come to understand a deep truth in Scripture, they may believe that God has spoken to them in in, in revelation, seemingly indicating a, a, a new type of revelation. But what has happened is that God has illumined their hearts to understand a truth from his word. So understand this, when you look at particularly verses 14 and 15 here, and you see this distinction between those who are spiritual and those who are natural, or those who are saved and those who are not, this is what he's talking about. Illumination is what separates believers from unbelievers when we read the Bible. If you don't hear anything else today, please hear that sentence. Illumination is what separates believers from unbelievers when we read the Bible. An unbeliever may read the Bible and can cognitively understand what they're reading. They can comprehend it in that sense. They can view it as merely a religious or a historical document much like I would read any religious text. But when a Christian reads the Bible, reads the Word of God, the Spirit guides him uh, to, to see it not just as mere history or religion, but the very words of God. And even more important, he allows the person to apply the great truths of the Bible to his life. And so he initiates that change that we so often talk about here. That's why we say we don't want to just gather every week and become better informed people got some new information today. That's awesome. No, we we want to see life transformation that comes about miraculously to those who are, as Paul describes here, spiritual. Now let me, let's, let's pause for just a moment because maybe you're thinking at this point, but pastor, there is so much in the Bible that I don't understand. Well, check this out. That's true for me too. (laughs) Okay. I've been studying the Bible most of my life, and there's still so much that I don't fully understand, and it would be easy for us to think that with the Spirit's help, we can understand everything that the Bible contains. That's not what I'm suggesting here. Okay, it's not as if the Holy Spirit is some sort of magic decoder ring that allows us to fully and completely, exhaustively understand everything in the Bible as it relates to God and his nature and, and all of those things. That's not the case. For example, with the Holy Spirit's illumination, we can see the Trinity in the Bible. We can even understand the aspects of how the Trinity works, but we can never truly understand the inner workings of the Godhead and comprehend how three can be one. There are still so many times I study these things in Scripture, and I just sit back and go, because I have a very finite mind. Okay? I, I can't fully grasp these things. We may not ever know why God allows certain events to happen while keeping other ones from ever taking place. Because we're not sovereign God. God gives us knowledge of Scripture that is true, but not necessarily exhaustive. And so if you're sitting here today doubting your salvation because there's still so much in the Bible you don't understand, take it easy. All right? Take it easy. Now, if the reason that there's still so much you don't understand is because you never opened the book, that's on you, okay? (laughs) That's on you. It's time to open the Bible and read, okay? And before you read, let me encourage you to do something. Pray very simply, Holy Spirit, illumine my heart and mind to understand these things. That's what Paul's talking about here. Let's talk for a moment about application. This kind of pulls it all together. In Revelation, God takes his words, his thoughts, conveys them to a biblical writer, Paul, others who wrote scripture, okay, the human authors that God used. In inspiration, the writer, under the power of the Holy Spirit, takes these thoughts, puts them on paper or parchment, okay? And in illumination, those words go from paper into the hearts of sinful human beings like you and me, aided by the Spirit, so the entire process is governed by the Holy Spirit. That's why this entire section of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is really spirit language. It's talking about the spirit, those who are spiritual. Let's make this practical. What does this concept of illumination really mean to us? Well, first, it gives me assurance that God can and will speak to me through his word. What that means is this. I don't have to rely on my own intellect and my own ability but can have confidence that God is working in and through me to bring light to the words of Scripture. Secondly, it means I must seek the Spirit's illumination when I study Scripture. That's that prayer that should be a part of of every time you open the Bible, every time you open the Word of God. Lord, illumine my heart and mind. Help me to understand these things. Thirdly, I must be diligent in my studies. Now, some of you, if you uh, are my kind of student, okay, there were many times, more times than I'd like to admit, that I had uh, an exam or a test coming up, and I was ill prepared for it. And and I may or may not ha- a time or two have actually put my notes under my pillow at night before I went to bed, hoping that somehow that information would would somehow miraculously come into my mind, okay? That's not what we're talking about here with illumination, okay? We're not talking about some kind of process where you leave your Bible on a shelf collecting dust and God somehow miraculously just transfers all of this incredible information, this wealth of knowledge into your little head, No, God honors the study of his word. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy and said, study to show yourself approved to God, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth so you can know how to cut it straight. So it doesn't get us off the hook. It's one of God's mysteries that our study becomes more rewarding, more meaningful as we dedicate greater effort to it. While we must rely on the Spirit, He expects us to be diligent. And then finally this morning, the Spirit matures believers. Now the phrases that are translated here, those who are spiritual, verse 13, the spiritual person, verse 15, if you go into chapter 3, verse number 1, He talks about spiritual people. It could lead some of us to believe that spiritual understanding is only reserved for some sort of super saint or some sort of super spiritual individual. Let's face it. If, if most of us were just approached on the street and someone said to you, are you spiritual? Some of us would kind of be hesitant. It's like, if I say yes, that's going to sound kind of arrogant, isn't it? Well, I'm not super spiritual if that's what you mean. Or what? That, that's, not the, that's not the message that's being conveyed here. Okay. You'll notice chapter 2, verses 6 through 16, that entire section, it's filled with contrasts. You've got worldly wisdom versus God's wisdom. You've got the world spirit versus God's spirit. You've got the people with the spirit, the people without the spirit. So the spiritual person that Paul is referring to here is one who has the spirit, not one who is indwelt by the spirit of God, accepting the message of the crucified Messiah. The natural person that Paul is speaking about here is the one who lacks the spirit and thus rejects the message of the gospel of a crucified Messiah. So fundamentally, we're talking about the saved and the unsaved. Now in chapter three, spoiler alert, we're going to be there next week, Lord willing, Paul is going to introduce a third type of person. That is the carnal person, the spiritually immature person. Okay, so in contrast to the person without the Spirit, in verse 14, one with the Spirit can evaluate and understand the truth that God's Spirit reveals. And that leads us back to the question that I asked you at the beginning of the sermon. How is your sense of smell? Again, one of the, one of the indications that a lot of people have contracted the coronavirus is they've lost their sense of smell. right? And some people have reported that it's, it's a bit unnerving. I mean, especially if you're like me and you like food, it's like you're putting this stuff in your mouth, but you can't taste it. You can't smell it and that kind of thing, right? Well, check this out. A person with no sense of smell can't evaluate perfume. Those without the Spirit, in the same way, cannot discern and evaluate the things of the Spirit of God. So when you walk through a department store... Right? And you go through that cosmetic section, it seems like, guys, it just like goes on for hours, right? And they've got that little men's section back in the back over there. But you know what I'm talking about? You go through there and it's like, wow, that is strong. Like you've got all these different perfumes and, you know, and they're doing samples and all this kind of stuff. But if you have no sense of smell, you're not even going to be phased by that. You're not going to be phased by it, and and that, that's a good illustration. It's imperfect, but it's a good illustration in many ways of what we're talking about here. If you are not indwelt by the Spirit, you don't have the ability even to fully understand and grasp these spiritual truths. It's kind of like this. We're I mean, talking about illumination. If you've ever been to Carlsbad Caverns or Inner Space Caverns or any of those kind of things, you know that most of the time on one of those tours, it includes a point where they like turn off all the lights, right? And you experience a darkness that you've never really experienced before. I mean, you are literally in the bowels of the earth, and it is dark. It's a darkness you can feel. And I remember specifically on one of those tours, uh, we were kind of going along, and and they let us walk along for a little while in the dark. And so we're like holding on to the, the, the shoulder of the person in front of us. We're just kind of in this little chain, like preschoolers, making our way in the dark. And then we stopped We waited for just a few seconds while we listened to the tour guide. And then they turned on the lights. And you were like, first of all, it took a minute for your eyes to adjust everything. And you realized you're in this massive, beautiful room filled with amazing stalactites and stalagmites and these formations that are just magnificent. But before the lights came on, you had no clue that you were standing in the middle of something so amazing. You just knew you're in the dark. That's what illumination is like. That's what it is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is talking about here. The natural man does not discern the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. You see, before you turn from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, you are, Scripture described as, walking in darkness... You are spiritually dead, and it's not until you are made alive by the Spirit of God and the light comes on, as we say, that that you experience this illumination. Again, we're not talking about, hey, hey, I need to understand everything in the Bible. I I still understand everything in the Bible, but I'm grateful to know that I'm indwelt by the Spirit of God, and He is illuminating these things for me, and I hope you can say the same thing. It's interesting here in, uh, in verse 16. Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 13, to support what he has just said in verses 14 and 15. And If you, if you look at that 16th verse, he says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? You, you ever thought you needed to give God some advice? Or you needed to instruct him? <laughs> you can't do that. No, but we do have the mind of Christ. It would be ridiculous to think that we could possibly give God advice or somehow instruct him. But those with the Spirit can understand God's wisdom because they have the mind of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who indwells believers, who teaches believers, who matures believers in their faith. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.